All right, welcome to another episode of the Healthy Roots Podcast, your go-to source for all things health and wellness from a biblical perspective primarily. Now, on today's episode, we're going to be diving into a rather controversial um, topic in discussing COVID. Yes, I'm going to be talking about COVID, again, from my perspective, but more importantly, going to be referencing a lot more intelligent and um, specific experts in the field that have been studying this and dealing with this and kind of going in depth on this conversation to hopefully give you some tips and tricks on how to um, better improve things like your immunity, help to fight things like viruses, and ultimately live a more active life. But I think that's important to start off with some statistics because the United States was actually, we only make up 4% of the world's population, but yet we accounted for approximately 16% of the COVID cases. Now, if you talk to people like Dr. Peter McAuliffe, um, the, the way that this was being diagnosed was probably done rather um, improperly. And what I mean by that was that there were oftentimes, the way that they were classifying a positive COVID case is that if you went and got tested for COVID four different times throughout the case of a month and you were testing positive each of those times, you were considered a new case. And so you can have multi- or one person accounting for multiple cases of COVID. Now, the other thing that was happening, again, specifically here in the States, maybe it was happening around the world as well, but if you were to have a positive COVID, ca- uh, COVID test and you were then to die in a car accident, they were counting that as a COVID death. Now, obviously, that COVID did not cause that disease or cause that death, but that's how that was being documented. So we're having huge numbers of, of COVID cases, huge numbers of COVID deaths. And also, you know, we have to appreciate the fact that um, there was probably some financial gain there. And again, this is just more of my opinion. But the way that a lot of this was being handled from a financial perspective, as far as those hospitals were concerned, is that they were often getting more financial backing if there were positive COVID um, patients in their um, facilities. And so they were getting more financial support. And so there was a lot of coding issues there. There was a lot of um, insurance questions. There was a lot of new stuff. And I think from what the general consensus is now is that there was a huge financial gain there. So again, this is more of my opinion and more probably of a theory, but it seems that there was an incentivization or in, they're being incentivized to um, to have positive um, COVID patients in their hospital. Now, obviously we can look back on time and we can see that you know there were a lot of poor measures that were taking place, um, masking, um, isolation, um, lockdowns, all that kind of stuff. And again, now that we have some time on our hands, and and there was a lot of smart people early on back in the day that were saying that, hey, masking is not a good idea. It doesn't protect you. It doesn't um, prevent you from getting the virus. It can maybe mitigate the spread if somebody's coughing and hacking up a lung and they're spreading droplets over the place. It can help to contain some of that. But again, there's a lot of research that's shown that, that the use of those masks were not effective. And in my opinion, and again, not just my opinion, but some research has shown that by wearing a mask, it led to maybe even a higher rate of transmission because of um, the touching of your hands on and, and, can, and uh, on a surface and getting the virus and then putting that, you know, touching your face, adjusting your mask, and then that you're, now you're breathing it in all day long and you're not switching your mask out every 10 minutes like you're supposed to and you're not in a sterile environment. And so you're just kind of constantly um, re-exposing yourself and that can maybe lead to higher viral load, uh, viral load and things of that matter. So you know, there was a lot of things that went wrong in the early days uh, with COVID. There's a lot of things that we, um, uh, our medical system did not do right. I think the biggest problem was that our, our pol- politicians were leading from the front and it should have been our healthcare professionals leading from the front. And instead it was focused on, you know, um, stimulus checks and, um, 
you know, developing a, a vaccine and pushing out things like masks and, and all that kind of mitigation work when really it should have been focused more on how do we actually promote more health? How do we focus on getting um, people to become healthier? Because as we'll be talking about here in just a second, if you look at why, getting back to that stat I talked about earlier when we're talking about um, mask or not masking, but talking about why the United States had such a high rate of, of the world's um, COVID cases and, and COVID deaths is that, you know, you look at, you look at some stats in the United States and six in 10, you know, 60% of, of Americans have chronic illness. Now, another big stat is that about 90, 93%, and it depends on who you look at, but some recent studies have shown that 93% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are um, more insulin resistant. It means that we have higher levels of visceral fat. It means that we probably have more issues with our thyroids and all that kind of stuff. And so you start seeing the complexity here on how, you know, if we have that high of a percentage of unhealthy people um, compared to the rest of the world, we are probably going to be making up the majority of, of the cases and deaths because we have a pre-existing inflammatory problem. And so some other stats here is that, you know, about 75 or 74% of all deaths are from chronic disease. 75% um, of Americans are overweight, 42% of Americans are obese, and um, about one in 10 Americans actually has um, type 2 diabetes, meaning it's, it's advanced to a much um, advanced stage. And so, you know, just some, some more information here on stats. So approximately half of Americans have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. And so if your blood sugar was between or is between 106 to 125, you have a 55% increased risk of severe COVID. 19. If your blood sugar is over 126, it was shown that you have a highly predictive, um, it's, high, it's shown to be highly predictive of death from COVID-19. If your A1C was less than 7, um, then you have a 46% increased risk of severe COVID-19. Um, if your A1C is between 7 and 9, you have a 232% increased risk of COVID-19, severe COVID-19. And if your A1C is over nine, you have a 260% increased risk of COVID-19. So you can look at all these stats. I'll be posting um, a lot of these um, resources in the show notes, but they're all out there. You can do your own research. You can go out and find them. This isn't my opinion. These are stats that were studied um, or research studies that were done. And they were shown this connection to why COVID-19 wreaks so much havoc. And again, you know, you can't deny the fact that whether we're looking at post-vaccine related problems or pre-vaccine related problems, there are studies that were showing that, you know, COVID by itself, regardless of having a vaccine or not, did, did have some negative side effects. There, there were some things that were, were not all completely normal. You know, during that time frame where we normally see about 70 or so thousand Americans die from the flu, it, once we kind of corrected for, you know, um, is it flu? Is it COVID? Was it a cold? You know, what was it like? Because there was such an, um, an issue of testing and getting a, a, a confirm. A, a confirmation of disease um, because of the the practices that we are using and and all that like it's it's probably been some studies adjust and they probably show that it would be more closely related to 120 150,000 people that actually maybe truly died of covid and so that's pretty it is an increase from a, a regular flu year and so it, it was definitely um, different but it wasn't likely what we were told as far as how severe it was and that every single person that was dying of covid was actually truly dying from covid but the thing that was interesting to me is that, you know, you know, just how during that time period, you know, somebody would come in to the hospital and if they're desatting, um, their oxygen was dropping, they would then put them on a ventilator. And the ventilator, again, has been shown to, um, was very common, but it did lead to higher rates of readmission 
and mortality, uh, as well as non-COVID respiratory distress syndrome and respiratory failure. And so, again, these are these are studies that have been done. This isn't my opinion. This is what the research is showing. And so, uh, the ventilator approach has since you know kind of fallen away, and we've, we're implementing different approaches now. But at that time, the ventilator was 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 likely contributing to more problems than it was helping to, to cause or create more solutions. And so that's something, again, we have to kind of pay attention to. There was just a lot of bad practices. And, and again, I, I understand the counter argument here where it's like, well, this is a new virus. It was a new protocol. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was happening. Well, yeah, that's true. But there were people out there that were strongly refuting what we were doing. And those people were being silenced and canceled. So say what you will, but that was happening left and right. And there was a lot of good qualified doctors like Dr. Peter McAuliffe who were being canceled and being said that they were wrong and that it, you know they were being shunned and being you know trying to threaten their license and and it's been shown that people like Peter McAuliffe um, actually was was spot on like you know he knew it was coming he was he's an expert he's a cardiologist um, there was other um, virologists and immunologists that are out there that were that are experts in the field that were saying hey this is not okay we got to do something different and so I really do feel like there was a lot of things that went wrong up front that led to um, a lot more problems than, than probably needed to be there but. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So now getting back to, you know, what is, what is you know, since the implementation of the vaccine, and I do have to say up front, just so I don't get canceled, like, I am not necessarily anti-vax. Um, I will say, you know, there, for my first couple kids, we did do some altered um, forms of vaccine schedules. I do not particularly believe that it's wise to load up a kid's, uh, a child's immune system with unnecessary vaccines, especially multiple vaccines at once, um, that has never been studied. They haven't studied five you know, different vaccines all at once and how it responds to a, a child's immune system because typically when you're studying something like a new vaccine, it's in isolation and they're seeing how that is doing and they're controlling for that variable. And so to, to have five different ones at one time and having the schedule of 27 vaccines you know, before the age of two or whatever it is, that, that's something that I have a hard time with. But when it comes to certain vaccines, you know, like polio, things like that, I think those have saved a lot of lives, you know, um, maybe even um, like the measles and things like that. Like I'm not, I'm not anti those vaccines. I think those have their place. But the difference between those types of vaccines and the COVID vaccine is that um, there are the different vaccines. There's, there's one that's known as a sterile that provides sterile immunity. And so sterile immunity is like the measles vaccine, for instance, is when you're a kid, um, if you get the vaccine, you'll never get measles. Like it, it stops it from the disease from developing. That's a sterile, um, it's called sterile immunity. The second class here is called, um, it's not, it's not sterile immunity, but it's more, it's more like the flu vaccine. It's going to be more similar to that in the sense that it's, it's a disease immunity. And so what that means is going to reduce your risk of getting the disease, or it's not going to reduce your risk of getting it, but it's going to reduce the, potentially the severity and the risk of death from that particular virus. And so this is where it gets interesting with the COVID vaccine, because as everyone knows at this point in time, it's different. It's, a, it's an mRNA technology. What it does is when it gets into your system, it activates this part of your genetic code that then creates spike protein. And that spike protein is then what causes this antibody production to be developed so that when spike protein enters your system again, your body identifies it as a foreign invader and it attacks it and deals with it. But... The big issue that they're seeing in a recent um, report came out from Yale, where it was looking at um, was looking at cardiovascular uh, events that are myocarditis and things like that that were happening um, after the vaccine occurred. And one of the big things that you know that they were specifying is that you know the, the issues that people are having with the cardiovascular system is not because of the antibody production. 
from that spike protein, but rather the immune system response and the production of more inflammation. And so if you start looking at, okay, well, what is what was the problem before COVID-19 hit? Well, we had a lot of inflammation in our culture. We had all those stats that I list off with metabolic syndrome, with you know type 2 diabetes, with cardiovascular disease, all those things. Autoimmunity has been on the rise for a while. We have an issue of inflammation in our country big time. Now, all of a sudden, you bring in a, a, a genetic material that will then modify how you produce an, an, an antibody that then causes an immune system response. So it, I don't know that it's fully well understood to this point. We're still seeing that you know, even two, three years after the vaccine that people are still dealing with issues and they're seeing issues happening a little bit later um, post, post uh, injection. A lot of them show issues primarily in the first 28 days after an injection, specifically the first seven days, but they're still seeing issues even two years afterwards and it's because when does that system turn off? Like when does that mRNA ch- technology that now changes your genetic code, does that just turn off or does it just keep doing its thing? And, and I, think the, I think the literature would support that it probably just keeps doing its thing. And so is there a way of shutting that off? I, I don't know. And I don't know that anyone else knows. And if, if anyone else has any information on that, I'd love to hear it. But from what I can tell from my research, that's not the case. We don't, we don't think that it turns off. And so Knowing that, it's like, okay, now you have this, 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 this thing in play in your system that is producing an inflammatory response in a system that is already inflamed. And this is why I think we're seeing such a huge rise in autoimmunity. Specifically, in my world where I work a lot with women who are having thyroid issues, I'm seeing it a lot more where you know, Hashimoto's is increased, uh, autoimmune thyroiditis is increasing. Uh, you're also seeing issues like fibromyalgia and, and MS and Guillain-Barre and all these different issues. And so it, it, there's definitely this issue of inflammation where people's bodies are, is kind of getting overloaded with, with too much. So another big thing to kind of pay attention to in regards to this conversation is, I think it was about 70% of, of the people that had severe COVID or maybe even died of COVID um, had, had low vitamin D. Now, vitamin D, if you don't know, it's, it's actually a, a pro-hormone, meaning it acts as a hormone in your system. And when, it, when, it's in our, when we eat it through our foods and things like that, it, it then gets activated by the sun. So that's why it's so important to be outside. And this is where often people get sick in the wintertime because we're not getting enough sunlight activation, UV activation of the, of the hormone in our system. But it has a huge connection to our immune system. And so most people are going by the conventional standards of what is a, um, a normal level of vitamin D. And the conventional standard is anything above 30 is normal. Um, so you can have people that are like 25, 24, 28, and they're considered low. Or you can be at 30, 31, 32, and you're, and you're normal. Um, in my world, in functional medicine training, at least, at least the way I've been taught, is that you really want to be between 50 and 75, maybe 80, um, at, to have like a really um, functioning high level of, of a, a vitamin D. Now, there was another study, I can't remember completely exactly where I read this, let's see if I can find it um, and put it in the reference notes, but um, there, I think there was a study that showed that there was no, maybe, maybe no death uh, due to COVID with somebody that had a, a vitamin D over 50. And so I, I, I have to look up that specifically. But regardless, it just it points the picture that vitamin D is 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 super crucial when it comes to improving your immune system and and fighting off things like this virus and not only just COVID but flu and cold and all those things too. So that would that's what I would say there is really make sure that you are bolstering your immune system. But getting back to metabolic health and, and why this is so important. So. A metabolically unhealthy person stores a lot of visceral fat around their waist. Now, visceral fat is something that, um, you know, subcutaneous fat, a little bit different. Visceral fat is is more of this deeper layer uh, of fat that can kind of, you know, hang around your organs. 
And what visceral fat primarily does is it kind of it can kind of drive inflammation. Fat is a is going to store toxins much more than anything else, and so this is why it's important to eat clean meat and eat you know from a food source that it is not getting injected with a bunch of toxins. Because then, if you're eating that fatty tissue, you are then likely getting a lot of those toxins in your food. Same is true with your own body. Your body is going to be storing a lot of these inflammatory toxins in your fat cells. And so when you're metabolically unhealthy and you're having high levels of insulin um, resistance, meaning that your body is not taking this sugar or this energy essentially and putting it where it's supposed to go, which is your cell, so you can actually use it for for functioning, instead it's going to take it and it's going to put it and store it as fat. And this is where you start to store visceral fat and you start getting more levels of, of higher rates of inflammation. Now, if you are doing that in combination with eating the standard American diet, which is full of ultra-processed foods, um, or even just processed foods, you're going to be taking that in those inflammation or the, those inflammatory process or those inflammatory metabolites, and you're going to be storing those probably in places like your visceral fat, and that's where you start to have more issues with inflammation and, and ensuring that you're not having chronic disease being developed. All right, so let's talk a little bit about post-vaccine injury. And this is, again, this is just based on the research. This is not necessarily my opinion. This is based on the opinion of a lot smarter people than I. Um, But what people like Peter McAuliffe, and this is something I heard recently, he was talking in a podcast and he was discussing how, you know, he's a cardiologist. He's been practicing for decades. He he said that before COVID-19 vaccines, he only saw two cases of myocarditis in his whole career. Um, Since the rollout of the vaccine, he is seeing now about two, one to two um, myocarditis patients per day. Um, that's huge. So just that, that's obviously one person, but there's a lot of other stat, uh, additional stats that are showing um, that the risk of myocarditis, you know, though if you Google it, it'll say it's rare. It depends on who you're looking at. A lot of the people that are having problems with myocarditis are people that are athletes, that are males, that are younger than 40. Now, you may think, oh, that's interesting. Well, I, you know, I was looking into it and thinking about it. And the reason that I can find is that the reason this is such a problem is that when you have adrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine, when you have that release, it's that whole fight or flight, uh, fight or flight response that is caused by um, adrenaline essentially. Right. And so that, that causes this increased demand on the heart. Well, for those who have myocarditis, myocarditis, myocarditis because of the vaccine, and then they go exert themselves, they're playing sports, they're getting in these stressful situations, they are the ones that are more likely to then have damage and potentially have issues like you know, a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. And so you have to then start to connect these connections. You look at all these athletes who are you know, like um, Bronny James, he's um, this basketball player from, uh, I think it was like Guatemala. Um, you know, some of these athletes have actually died or had serious um, uh, side effects that were not just you know, showing up on a PET scan. Now, another uh, study that, that Dr. McAuliffe references um, is, is discussing how they're seeing that, that nearly all of the people that have had the vaccine, at least according to the study, are, are showing an abnormal cardiac PET scan. So they're seeing that there's damage that is occurring to the heart in some capacity. It may not be showing up as myocarditis. It may be something a little bit less. But regardless, it's showing up on, on the PET scans where they're seeing damage to the heart. So um, super important to realize you have to take risk. You have to mitigate those risks. And, you know, you have to consider things like blood clots and, and why that's happening. And, and that's happening more and more frequently. And so this is this is becoming out more in the literature now. Again, this is not my opinion. I'm just reporting what I've been reading, what I've been hearing. And it is it is something that we have to be very cognizant of. We have to be very careful about. And, and so now the question is, what do I do? you know, maybe I have been vaccinated, maybe I've been dealing with this for a long time. 
um, what, do I, what can I do to kind of help myself? Well, again, getting back to Dr. McAuliffe's protocol, he's, he promotes um, a few different supplements to take on more of a routine basis. One of those is, is natokinase, which is he recommends, I think, 2,000 milligrams uh, twice per day. Um, that, that has been shown to kind of help in breaking up clots. Um, the other one is bromelain, uh, um, which is um, about 500 milligrams twice per day. And then um, he says curcumin, 500 milligrams twice per day. I usually recommend phytosome curcumin, which is um, P-H-Y-T-O-S-O-M-E. It's a little bit more um, absorbed and it's a little bit more effective. So those are that's kind of his protocol to follow. There's a lot of different supplement companies out there that are now um, making these products in combination together because it is becoming much more of a, of a need. Um, but it's in general, what you want to focus on if you are trying to work through something like post-COVID or, or long COVID, or you're still dealing with those side effects, or you just maybe you were infected and you never got vaccinated, or maybe you had a combination of both. Either way, you don't feel well. You know, what we walk our clients through in my program is we walk them through, you know, obviously a diet that is anti-inflammatory, really promotes um, a reduction of the toxins that they're bringing in on a daily basis. If you haven't done that yet, you at least have to stop eating garbage food. You got to start eating foods that are promoting um, um, glutathione, which is a big antioxidant in your system. You got to be eating things that are reducing the load, the toxic load on your system and just stop the influx of toxins. You have to look at things like your air quality in your house. You know, I like to use an air doctor for, for filtering out our air. I can provide a link down for that in the, in the show notes as well. Uh, you got to pay attention to just your atmospheric air and where you're living. If you're living in a big city, you probably are more uh, exposed to things like lead and, and heavy metals just because of what you're breathing in. You also have to consider, um, your hydration, you have to consider your deficiencies and you have to take all these, your stress, you know, stress is a huge one. Um, exercising is a big releaser of glutathione. Um, you know, we have to move our bodies. And so when we have clients coming through our program, we walk them through this process and figuring out what their specific issues are, where they're struggling and how we can help them individually kind of overcome these problems. But you do have to realize like, if you're just eating garbage food, like you got to stop eating garbage food, guys. Like this is, this has got to stop. Like we know at this point, like you got to stop eating the processed food. It's designed to be tasty. It's designed to be addictive. And it's designed, in my opinion, to kind of destroy you. So um, and I know people out there will say that's fear-mongering. They'll say that, show me the research. There's plenty of research either way that show that omega-6s from ultra-processed diets is actually good for cardiovascular health. And I just don't know how people are still believing that. But there's also a lot of studies out there that show that, you know, you need to have a good balance of omega-3s to omega-6s. Um, typically, my protocol that I like to help people with initially is just omega-3 fatty acids. Um, you want to make sure that you're getting quercetin. Um, especially if you are sick, it kind of helps with zinc, um, it helps with the virus. Um, you also want to look at um, resveratrol, typically 200 to, to 1200 milligrams per day. Alpha lipoic acid is great with, uh, with helping into regulating um, inflammation and also blood sugar. Um, and then an NAC is N-acetylcysteine, um, 600 to 1200 milligrams, two to three times per day. And all these things can be very helpful at promoting, um, to kind of breaking down oxidation and promoting you know, those antioxidant benefits that we're all looking for, which essentially just reduces inflammation. So that's where I like to focus with people. Um, you can obviously, if you're interested in that, I'll put, uh, I'll put my, my full script account down in the captions below. You can, um, or down in the description below, you can see the supplements that I recommend. You can kind of, um, join my, my account. It's just, it's a free account. It's a company that I like to use that they have uh, quality supplements that, um, I know are trusted. I can trust them. And I use a lot of different brands, um, cause there's not necessarily just one perfect brand out there. Um, but that's, that's typically my recommendation. Obviously, vitamin D, most people need to be somewhere in the range of 2,000 to 6,000 milligram or uh, IUs per day. You want to make sure you're taking that with food. It just, again, it depends on where you are. Getting tested is your best bet to ensure that you are, um, you, your vitamin D is sufficient. 
You don't want to just be taking gobs and gobs of vitamin D, especially if you're not taking it paired with K2. K2 usually helps in the delivery, helps to prevent calcium being pulled from your bones, and it helps to ensure you're getting maximal um, absorb, uh, absorption from um, vitamin D. Now, there's a lot of different reasons people can be deficient in vitamin D, um, sometimes insufficiency from their food. Sometimes it, there is like a small percentage of people that can have um, a gene that codes um, in their system that kind of makes vitamin D absorption difficult, but that's not most people. Most people don't get enough sunlight. Most people don't get enough through, through their diet. Uh, most people are eating processed foods and they're just depleting a lot of their resources. And so I, I hope you found this beneficial and I do hope that you will subscribe to this channel and share this with friends and do all that good stuff. But just know that moving forward that the best way to start improving your health is instead of focusing on disease, you wanna focus on ways that you can activate health. And if you provide health to your body, which is the host, oftentimes disease cannot be coexisting with health in that same host. Have a blessed day.